Well, we're ending a series this morning uh, through the New Testament letter from a man named Paul who was an apostle who started churches and he started some churches in the area of Galatia, which is today modern-day Turkey. And he wrote a letter to them with some concern and some teaching points. And we've been walking through the six chapters of that letter the last six weeks. And today we're concluding that. And I want us, before I jump in specific to today's message, just to, um, to read through this chapter. I know sometimes we kind of look at certain points of the chapter, but if if you don't mind, just out of reverence for God's word and for this letter and what it means to this life, would you one more time just stand with me and uh, just allow me to read this chapter over us as a church, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go back. And uh, my goal today is to explain something to you that you may not fully understand, to teach you something that you may have never learned, and to remind you of something that we've been talking about for the last five weeks. Let me read this final chapter of this incredible letter that still applies to you and to me. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, And I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. And finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this incredible letter. Thank you for speaking to us even today. Um, as we've preserved this letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And we just pray that we would receive it as a church and as a people, that you would help us receive the grace and the freedom that's found in you and extend that grace and that freedom to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for helping me honor God's Word by standing this morning. Let me review for you real quick, in case you haven't been with us the past six weeks, uh, what this letter has spoken to us, specifically as a church. In week one, we talked about the fact that there are two Gospels, 
And Paul was astonished. He was upset with the church in Galatia for having uh, leaned into a gospel that wasn't really a gospel at all. We talked in that week about the fact that one gospel talks about how we earn righteousness through our works and things we do, and we have to prove our value to God. And the other gospel, the true gospel, leans into the fact that Jesus has done for us everything that's needed for us to be righteous. One gospel is about doing, and one gospel is about receiving. And Paul was upset that um, specifically in this church, there was an issue where they were uh, a group of Jewish believers who had come to this churches who weren't Jewish and had no background in the Jewish rules and customs, and they had tried to get them to embrace the rules, specifically the rule of men being circumcised. And Paul is saying, you're missing the point of the gospel. It's not about following rules. It's about receiving righteousness in Christ. And then in week two, we came back and talked about how we have a tendency in our walk with Christ to kind of swing back and forth between the two. And on our best days, we stand in the grace of God and we receive all that he has for us. But then there's other days where we tend to feel like we've got some things that we need to check off and we weren't good enough. And so we've got to work harder and do better. And then we swing back to the to the place here, and we talked about the need to be crucified with Christ and die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us. In week three, uh, Pastor Tracy Reynolds was with us, and he preached uh, all about what grace was and, and the importance of understanding grace and what God offers to us. Week four, we came back and talked about the difference between a slave and a son that we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to this world. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed. We've been set free. And we should no longer go back into a lifestyle of slavery, one specifically, which is um, being enslaved to the law, uh, which was the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, that the Judaizers, this Jewish group of believers, was trying to impose on these Gentile believers. And so we talked about the importance of understanding that we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High, and we do not have to approach our faith as a slave which means that we get nothing uh, that involves joy out of following Christ, but it's all about rules and being good enough and receiving condemnation. And so we talked about the importance of receiving that. And then last week, uh, I was privileged to have my brother Brian here to preach, and he shared with us the importance of becoming mature in our faith and maturing and understanding the fact that our freedom in Christ shouldn't be an opportunity for our flesh. In other words, just because we've received freedom for, through the grace of Jesus Christ doesn't mean we have permission to just go out and do anything we want and live any way we want and, and then say, well, the grace of God is going to cover this and so I can just act any way I want. But it's important for us to grow and mature in our faith and understand that we respond to God in ways that he teaches, not because we have to, but because we get to. And it's a response to the love that God has for us. Now today, we're going to kind of end our time in this series by talking about the importance of the grace that we've received extending to others. I know a lot of us love the idea of receiving God's grace, right? If you're like me, you need God's grace. If you're like me, the thought that God doesn't hold your past against you, he doesn't hold your future against you, he doesn't hold the mistakes that you're making uh, 
uh, in this season of your life or that you're going to make in the next season of your life against you, but he offers you rescue and freedom and grace and mercy. But oftentimes when we tend to look at others in our life, be people in our family or in our church or the places we work or the places we go to school or our teams or whatever that looks like, we tend to look at others through a different lens than we look at ourselves. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes for me, it's easy for me to find fault in others before I find fault in myself. And today we're going to talk about the importance of extending the grace that God's given us freely to others the way that he's extended it to us. And before I jump in to uh, verse number one and kind of explain something to you, help you understand something that you may not have understood. Uh, Let me just say that Synergy Church has always and will always desired to be a place that is full of God's grace. We are not perfect and we don't expect you to be perfect. We make mistakes. We understand that we all will make mistakes and our goal is to be a church that is full of compassion and full of love, that extends hope to those who may be hopeless, who extends mercy to those who don't deserve it, who extends grace to people who haven't earned it, because we believe that God has done for us what we didn't deserve, and we always have an obligation to do to others what they don't deserve. That's the heart of our church. It always has been and it always will be. But Paul gives us a statement here, and I'm going to read this first statement to us, and then I'm going to talk about how we kind of perceive this statement. In chapter 6, verse number 1, this apostle writes to these believers and says, Brothers, and that includes the ladies. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If someone is caught in sin, if someone is caught in sin, they're guilty of sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. There have been occasions in church world where people have been hurt by the church. There have been occasions in church world, and when I say church world, I just mean churches all across the world. Churches in this community, churches in this state, this country, um, all, all through other countries alike. There have been occasions where men or women or students have been involved in sin. We're not talking about like the sin where your wife comes home from getting her hair cut and she's like, hey, how do you like it? And you don't really like it, but you know that she likes it. And you're like, baby, it's beautiful. It's great. We're not talking about like a one-time something that you just messed up and you didn't mean to do. We're not talking about digging into everyone's business and searching out the fault in one another. We're talking about when someone is caught in sin, meaning that they have been involved in a lifestyle that isn't taught by God's word and embraces sin, which separates us from God. They claim to be a believer. We're talking about people in the church here, not people outside of the church. This is a distinction that you have to make. We don't have an obligation to judge those outside of the church. We have an obligation to judge those inside the church. But we're not talking about people who just make mistakes. We're talking about people who have embraced a life of sin, a season of sin, a period in their time where they have willingly turned their back against God and have pursued selfish gain or have pursued um, uh, a type of satisfaction that is found outside of the will of God. And that person is caught in sin Paul says to us that we should restore him gently. 
meaning there should be no condemnation to them, that there should be no attempt to uh, shame them or embarrass them or call them out as if they have um, failed at life. There should be no pride in our hearts that say, we're right and you're wrong and you're condemned. And so we now cast on you judgment that says you're no longer welcome here at our church. Paul says that should never happen. That should never happen. But here's the flip side of that coin. The flip side of that coin is, is, a coin, is a side that says that there is an approval of sin that allows someone's business to be their own business and we should just stay out of it. You ever heard that? The church should just stay out of it. It's none of the church's business. It's their own life. They can deal with it how they want to deal with it. It's none of your business. Just leave them alone and forget about it. To a lot of people, that feels like grace. To a lot of people, not having a conversation, not having a difficult conversation, not having a confronting conversation, to say to someone, I've heard, I've seen, it's been brought to my attention that you have been involved in sin and we need to talk about it because our hope and our goal for you is to be restored to the rightful place that God has for you. But for a lot of people, that's not grace. What grace is in the eyes of a lot of people is just saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. We're going to kind of stay out of it and you can just deal with it how you want and, and it'll be fine. And I just want you to know that that's not the heart of Paul either. So when people make statements like, you know, the, the church went about that all wrong or they did this all wrong and they don't know details, sometimes... They use a passage like this without understanding the context of the passage. And I want to show you, I want to show you that Paul's heart here is not to approve of man's sin. It's not to go out of your way to make sure people don't feel bad about their sin. But it's for people to be restored. That's the heart of God for everyone. That's the heart of the church is that those who are caught in sin, those who have embraced a lifestyle of sin when they claim to be believers would be restored, would leave that life of sin and come back and be in right standing with God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives an example that is a difficult example. Sometimes we think that we got so many issues that they never dealt with back in the day. But I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for you just to help us understand. This is written by the same man, the same Apostle Paul, to a different church. This is the church in Corinth that was going through a different type of season. And Paul was addressing them in a different way. But they had sin involved in their church. And Paul speaks pretty clearly about the response of that church to that man. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, starting in verse number 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's calling out, hey church, you've got sin in the camp. You've got sin among you. It's reported. People know about it. And of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Okay, so you think that like there's issues in our world today. In this church, in Corinth, in the first century, there was a man who was with his father's wife. Now, he doesn't say his mom, so I'm assuming that this would be a stepmom, whether his dad was a widower and remarried or what that looked like. But there is a man in the church in Corinth who is now with his father's wife. Okay? Not good. No, you shouldn't do this. Even the people of the world, he says, even the people out there outside of the church don't even do this. 
So he's calling out. Someone's been caught in sin. Verse number two. And you are proud. Like you've given approval. You've turned an ear to the sin that's involved here. And you're like congratulating the son for being with this woman. Maybe you think he's a better fit for her. I don't know. Maybe he married really young and and you the son are more her age. And y'all have more in common. I don't know what the situation was. But for whatever reason, the church was proud, meaning that they had accepted this sin in their midst. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Shouldn't you have dealt with this issue? Shouldn't you have confronted this issue? Verse number three, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So there goes the statement that we shouldn't judge people, right? Because Paul is saying, I've already passed judgment on this guy. We're going to talk about why in just a second. But Paul is saying, this is wrong. This is sin, and this needs to be dealt with. And you as a church, Corinth, you have accepted it. In fact, you have embraced it, and you have allowed it to stay among you to the degree that you're even proud of it. You think that this is a good thing. Now let's skip down to verse number 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's saying, I'm not talking about people outside the church. We are not to judge those outside of the church. One of the things the church is guilty of most is we have the tendency to condemn people outside of the church who never claim to be followers of Jesus, who never claim to live godly lifestyles, and we condemn them for not living godly lifestyles. We're like, I know you're not even trying to live for Jesus, but just want you to know you're not doing it very well. And Paul's saying, we would have to leave the world if that was our goal, but we have no business judging people outside of the church. Verse number 11 But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Now this seems harsh. For remember, this is the same man who says that we should restore someone gently. On one side you say, well, grace says we don't deal with it at all. We just let people work things out on their own. And the other side says we deal with it gently and it's a heart to restore. What is it? And it's two different cases here that we're talking about. We're talking about one church that had embraced the sin and had allowed it and was even proud of it. And we're talking about to another, the people who not necessarily have experienced things, but he's just given them instructions. It's all about your heart for people. Your heart is not to condemn people. Your heart is for God to restore people. And over here in Corinth, there was someone who was willingly turning their back to the cross of Christ, who was willingly living a sinful lifestyle. And Paul is saying, if they're not willing to be restored, see, here's here's the kicker. Sometimes when you have a conversation and you want to restore someone, you want someone to come back to be who God's called them to be, they don't want to. So what do you do? Do you just say, well, you know, just just stick around and, you know, we'll just become proud of it? Paul says, no, you kick them out. And it's, it's, it's not a condemnation that says they don't deserve to be in the church, that they're not good enough to be in the church. It's all about a heart to restore people. And when someone 
doesn't have a heart to be restored, Paul says if you've tried gently to restore them and they're having nothing to do with it, then don't allow it to stay in your church. Now, the goal would be never to kick anyone out of your church. The goal would never be to push someone away. But he is so strongly stating here the importance of being for people and restoring them gently, but understanding that restoration is a two-sided, is a two-way street. That you have to want to be restored to allow someone to restore you. And you have to gently care about someone enough to even want to restore them. It's easier to let people just live any way they want and not deal with it, right? I don't have to get messy. I don't have to have a hard conversation. I don't have to have awkward moments with you. I just let you deal with things the way you want you to do. But that is not caring for people. That is not extending the grace of Jesus to someone who needs it. How would we as a church help someone who we know needs God's grace by not giving it to them and just saying, you know, just live any way you want? And then verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside of the church? God will judge those outside, but you expel the wicked man from among you. So just in case you feel like grace coming from a church to an individual caught in sin, not someone who has like flirted with sin, not someone who's made a mistake, but someone who has embraced a sinful lifestyle who is willingly going down a road that they know they shouldn't go down if they claim to be a follower of Jesus. Our goal is not to just let them keep going. Our goal is to restore them, but the goal is to do it gently. And here's why. Verse number two of Galatians chapter number six. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know, sometimes church is just messy. Sometimes church isn't full of a bunch of perfect people. Because if it were, then when I came in, I would feel like I needed to put a mask on. Because I'm not that perfect person. And if we ever create a culture of a church where people feel like they have to look a certain way or act a certain way to be accepted, then we haven't carried a fulfillment to the law of Christ for people, which is to extend grace to people. Verse number three. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here it is. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. Our goal as a church isn't to be spiritual detectives. We aren't to go around like investigating people's lives, trying to find fault with people so that we can confront them and make them mad and run them away. There may be churches out there that do that. I don't know. I don't know that they would admit it if it were true. But our goal is to be a church that's full of people who first test their own actions and their own motives and their own hearts. And when you begin to look at yourself and you find fault in yourself before you look at others and find fault in your others, then you begin to have compassion on people when people need compassion. In fact, Paul says that we should carry one another's burdens. Then when people need us the most, we should be there willing to help them get through difficult seasons, to help them break free from addictions and bondages, to help them receive restoration and new life and new hope when they've made mistakes or they've gone awry or they've traveled down the wrong road. But our heart is never to condemn. 
It's always for people. And so when we read statements like this, I just want to explain to you that Paul is talking about seeking the good of people's hearts. And if we'll all start with ourselves and focus on ourselves more than we focus on finding fault in others, then we'll become more healthy people so that we can extend the grace of God to others when they need it. Because Lord knows that I'm the chief among all of us that needs God's grace in my life. And if you're like me, you appreciate it when people give you the same grace. The church should never be a place where people feel unwelcome because they made a mistake. The church should be full of people who know if I ever make a mistake, I know I'm in the right place. Because there's a group of people that's going to support me, it's going to help me, it's going to carry my burden and help me receive restoration. They're going to restore me gently in Christ. That's the heart of our church. It always has been and it always will be. Each one should carry his own load. So, first thing I want to explain to you is that when we deal with sin inside the church, it should be done gently and with a heart towards restoration. But we should also, on the flip side of that, never turn a deaf ear towards sin. If you know that there's someone in our church who has a sin issue, has embraced a lifestyle that's contrary to God's word, then you should go to them. It's not about like calling them out publicly. Go to them. You are the church. Love them enough just to say, hey, I'm concerned. I've heard some things. I've seen some things. You know, is there anything that I can do to help you receive God's grace? Is there anything that I can do for you? That's the heart that we should have for one another. Always has been and always will be. The second thing I want to do is I want to teach you something. I want to teach you some laws. In this book of the Bible, this letter, we've been talking about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and that the law is no longer a master to us and we're no longer slaves to the law. But uh, there's three laws that I want to give you. These aren't laws that you have to obey. They're just uh, natural laws, like the law of gravity. If you throw something up, it's going to come back down. There's three laws that I need to teach you to make sure that you understand something. Verse number seven. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Anyone ever heard the word karma before? What goes around comes around. I don't believe in karma. I don't believe that what goes around comes around, that you've got what's coming to you, that because you did evil, you're going to receive evil. I don't believe in that. I believe in the grace of God. I believe that in spite of our terrible choices, in spite of our difficult circumstances, that God wants us to receive freedom in Him. But you do need to understand that there is a law, a law of sowing and reaping that applies to your life. Whether you like it or not, what you sow, you will reap. And there's three things that I want to teach you. Number one, you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You will always reap what you sow. This, this year, back in April, uh, my oldest son, Landon, and I, we planted some tomato plants on the side of our home. And uh, would you believe that outside of our home right now, we're, we have tomatoes that we're picking and eating? Funny how that works. We planted tomatoes, and now we're eating tomatoes. Wouldn't it have been strange if we had planted tomato seeds and we started getting 
cucumbers. Like, that's weird. I planted tomatoes and I'm getting cucumbers. It doesn't work, does it? If you plant apple seeds, you're going to get an apple tree and it's going to bear apples. Orange for orange. If you plant cucumbers, you're going to reap cucumbers. If you sow grass, you're going to reap grass. This isn't a difficult concept, but we forget this. We forget that sometimes we sow seeds in our life, and when we reap those seeds, we tend to feel like God's not for us. He's he's against us. How could he allow this to happen to me? This is like this is like the man who who is a serial killer who's killed 50 people. He's in prison for the rest of his life facing facing death row and and, and a minister comes to him in the prison and shares the gospel of Jesus and he receives salvation. He's been rescued from his sin and he's like, "So I get out of jail now, right?" And you're like, "No. <laughs> Doesn't work that way." You sowed seeds and you're going to reap what you sowed. God's grace doesn't do away with the consequences to our actions. Now, I wish it would. I wish that any time I made a decision or sowed a seed in life that I could just play a grace card and say, nope, we're not going to uh, reap that one. I don't want to reap that. But now I'm, I want to maybe sow some financial seeds and I want to reap a harvest there. That would be great. You know, I want to I sow some relational seeds and I want to have great relationships. That would be incredible. We want to reap rewards to good things we've done, but we don't want to reap a harvest for bad seeds that we've sown. But you just need to know that you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. So it's important to understand what seeds am I sowing with my life. We'll talk about what that looks like in a second. Number two, verse number eight. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Two types of sowing we can do. We can sow to the sinful nature, and if we do, we're going to reap destruction. Or we can sow to the Spirit, and we'll reap eternal life. Here's a second principle for you. You'll always reap more than you sow. You will always reap more than you sow. When Landon and I planted those three little tomato plants, someone had already planted a seed that had begun to grow, and we planted that into the ground we did not get just one tomato. Thankfully, we've been getting multiple tomatoes. And here's the principle. When you sow something, you reap more than you sow. Seeds tend to multiply. Sins seed to, uh, seeds tend to grow. And the things that we sow in this life, we reap with a harvest that's more plentiful than the seeds that we grew. The seed will always become bigger than it was. And this is incredible because if you sow to the Spirit, if you sow godly seeds, then you reap eternal life. You sow some, some seemingly insignificant seeds... And you reap eternal life for the rest of eternity. You get to spend in the presence of God because you sowed some spiritual seeds. But you sowed to the flesh, and you don't just reap a consequence here or there. You reap destruction. It's important to understand 
that you will always reap more than you sow. So be careful where you're sowing. Be careful what you're sowing. Be careful what you're investing into. Be careful what you're committing time and energy to. Because when you reap, it's going to be more than you sowed. He goes on in verse number 9 to say, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Lastly, you will always reap after you sow. You'll always reap after you sow. You don't go out and plant a tomato plant and have tomatoes the next day. We planted in April. We began to get in tomatoes in late June, maybe early July. There is a process by which the seed begins to grow before it produces fruit in our lives. And some of us to this day are dealing with the harvest that we've reaped because of seeds that we sowed years ago. And I could take you to countless people, including myself, that say, I wish I never would have fill in the blank because today, fill in the blank. And I can also take you to people, including myself, I'm so glad that when I was younger, blank, because today I'm enjoying whatever that looks like. I can tell you numerous, numerous occasions where in my past I have sowed seeds that today I'm reaping a harvest on. Some great, some regrets, some things I look back on and I wish, how did I allow that to happen? And some things I look back on and say, I'm so thankful that I invested in that. Don't be deceived because God gives you grace doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with the consequences of your actions. You will reap what you sow. In fact, you'll reap more than you sow. And you'll always reap after you sow. So let's make sure that we're sowing seeds to the Spirit and not seeds to the flesh. Go back and read Galatians chapter 5 if you need uh, some explanation on what the difference is. We looked at that last week. And then lastly, I want to I give you a reminder. Verse number 11. Paul says, See what large letters I use as I write to you. I wish I could have seen his original handwriting. He's basically saying, man, listen to me. I've been telling you this for five chapters now. I've been writing a lot, but listen, I'm serious. You got to get this. You got to understand how important this is. Verse number 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Some people concern, are concerned more about outward appearances than they are inward realities. Some people want to look a certain way, and Paul's addressing that. They're trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, to remind you, the issue at hand here is that a group of Jewish believers were trying to get a group of Gentile believers to get circumcised because they say it's great that you've received the gospel of Jesus, but it's Jesus plus the law. And so they're coming in trying to say, if you want to really be a Christian, then you'll go all the way and embrace the law too, which says that men have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, they're only doing that because they're more concerned about the outward. They're concerned about how they appear. They are concerned about what they look like. In fact, he's saying that they're doing it because 
they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They know that they, if they don't force you to obey laws that you're not subject to, then people who do obey those laws will condemn them for not forcing you to, to obey the laws. And they're more concerned about themselves and how they look to others than they are about you. That's why they don't really care much about you, and they're just saying you need to be circumcised so that they'll feel good about themselves. Funny how we have a tendency to try to impose things on others so that we'll feel better about ourselves. 13, not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Here's the problem. In the Jewish law, they had compiled 613 laws. God gave Moses 10 commandments. Basically, the children of Israel throughout history said, we don't want to break these 10 commandments, so we're going to make a law back here that will keep us from even getting close to the commandments. And then we're going to make a law on this side of that line to keep us from getting close to this line, which is keeping us from getting there. And so they're trying to safeguard things, and so they're making all kind of laws to try to earn righteousness in God's eyes, and it's impossible to keep them all. So they're making a big deal about one law in this specific church. And Paul's saying, those who are trying to enforce this law, they don't keep all the laws. You can't enforce one law and not enforce them all. It's impossible. Why are they trying to do this? Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. They want to be able to say, look what we got them to do. Because in the eyes of the Jewish believers, they think that it'll look better. They're not concerned more about the people they're ministering to. They're concerned more about the people they're answering to. And that's where we get into a dangerous boat is where we concern more about what people think about us and how we treat others than we are about how we actually treat people in our lives. And then I love this verse that Paul says, and I hope that it's a prayer of my life. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only thing worth boasting in in my life is the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. I want to be able to look back. I want to be able to tell people, I look back over my life and I can tell you what Jesus has done for me. And his grace is sufficient. And that's worth bragging about. That's worth boasting about. Not what we force other people to do to try to make them look and act a certain way. Verse number 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. And here it is. What counts is a new creation. What counts is a new creation. Now hear my heart, and we're going to end our time together. I always have felt that there is a pressure on churches to be behavior modifiers. That we have a tendency to look at people's lives and say they don't act the way we think a Christian should act. And so instead of truly being concerned more about their heart and allowing God to do in their life what he wants to do in their life, we try to dictate what their behavior looks like. And we try to change the patterns of their behavior. You can change behavior without becoming a new creation. You can do everything that a Christian is supposed to do without being a Christian. Please hear me. Just because you come to church week in and week out doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you read the Bible, it doesn't make you a Christian. And just because you pray to God, it doesn't make you a Christian. 
Students, you can live your whole young lives until you're married and never commit sexual immorality, and that doesn't make you a Christian. Men, women, you can never cheat on taxes. You can always give 10% of your money to the church as a tithe, and that doesn't make you a Christian. Doing Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. You know what makes you a Christian? The work of God in you. And becoming a new creation. That he takes the old and transforms it into something new. And that is something that I can't do for you. And that's something that you can't do for someone else. I can point you towards the work of God. I can explain to you the love of Jesus and the grace that's offered to you. But I can't make you a new creation. And Paul says, what matters most is a new creation. God bless you. So please hear me. As we're ending this incredible letter, this book of the Bible in the New Testament, living a godly life is not about a set of rules. It's not about a religion. It's not about checking things off a list. It's about receiving what God has for you and allowing that grace to transform you and to make you new. And if we ever have a tendency to try to impose behavior modifiers on people, may we be reminded that we cannot change the heart. Only God can do that. But let's love one another enough to point them in the right direction, to restore them when they fall, to offer them the freedom that we've received. Because if you've truly found Jesus, if Jesus has truly changed your life, there is joy unspeakable. And there is freedom that can't be contained. And if your approach to Christianity, if your approach to following Jesus doesn't feel like freedom, then I just want you to know that you're following the wrong gospel. That the result of your walk with Jesus should be a freedom that causes you to rejoice in the God of your salvation. That there is available to you a God who loves you enough to not count your past against you, to not offer con condemnation to you. He's not looking for you to mess up so that he can cast judgment on you, but he sent his son Jesus because he loves you enough to provide a way for you to be rescued from yourself, not so that you can become good or better, but so that you can become new. And in him, we can stand in his righteousness because of what he's done and not what we've done. And all we have to do is receive it by faith through grace. By grace through faith. As we end this series, I just want to ask us, have you been made into a new creation? Do you struggle with feeling like I'm not good enough and God can't do anything with me. I've got to get my act together. I've got to change some things and then I can come to God and he can use me. Because if that's the case, I just, I've got good news for you today. And that's that Jesus is offering, even in this moment, an opportunity for you to be made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And if you're here and who you are hasn't been made new and you haven't received the love and the grace of God, 
to make you brand new, to leave the old behind and stand in the freedom that he offers, an opportunity to be adopted as a son, an heir of God. And today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your head, close your eyes just for a moment? I'm not going to prolong this, but if you're here today and you say, that's me, I want to be made new, I want to receive the grace of God, would you just raise a hand? Nobody's looking around. I just want to know if there's anybody in the room that I can pray with and believe that God can make you into a new creation. Anybody at all? Awesome. I see a hand. You can put that down. Anybody else in the room? Incredible, incredible, incredible. Awesome. Everybody look at me. Here's what I'm going to do. I I know I saw at least one hand. I'm going to lead you in a prayer if that was your hand that went up. And I'm going to ask us as a church if we can all pray this prayer together. And and, uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And he will transform your life and make you brand new. And you can receive freedom that's found in him through grace by faith. So I'm going to pray this prayer. And uh, I just want to ask us all just to repeat it out loud just so that we don't make anyone feel as if they're praying this prayer alone, but as a way of showing support. Can we just pray this together? Believe this in your heart and you'll be saved. Just say, Lord Jesus, I know that you love me. And today, I ask that you would grant me freedom in you. I receive your grace. I trust in you. I ask you to make me brand new. I receive you as my Savior and commit to live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. And can we all just together just celebrate someone today, praying that prayer and asking Jesus to do something incredible for them?